What a beautiful song. Love the bridge with the drums and the acknowledgement of who God is and how great He is. What a mighty God we serve. Amen? Friends, uh, I'm glad to be with you here this morning. We're going to continue looking at the book of Jude. This is our fourth sermon in the book of Jude. And maybe just to say, you might have missed the other three. That's okay. Uh, Don't switch off. (laughs) Uh, This sermon will stand alone. Uh, But if you want to catch up on previous sermons, whether they be from the book of Jude or whether they be from the book of Exodus that Charles has been preaching in, can I encourage you to go to our church website or go to our church YouTube channel? Uh, All the sermons are available there, previous sermons. The book of Jude isn't a long book. It's 25 verses. And so I I would like us, so that we've got the book firmly fixed in our minds before I start to preach from verse 11 through to verse 16. I'd like us to have the book firmly set in our minds. So we're going to read through the book, and I'm going to give you the, the five big ideas that the author is presenting in the book as we go through it. But to honor the reading of God's word, And that we might pay careful attention to it. Could I ask that you stand while I read the word of God? Please do stand. The first part of the book of of, uh, Jude. Jude is going to identify himself with his readers. And he's going to pray for them. Let's read Jude chapter 1 verse 1 beginning at the first verse. Hear the word of God. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The next two verses are the the big idea in the book of Jude. He's going to encourage us to earnestly contend for the faith. He says in verse 3, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Brings us to verse 5 and the real body of the text. Who are we to earnestly contend against? From verse 5 through to verse 16. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Here's the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today from verse 11 to verse 16. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reeves at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding among themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. The next section is really the application of the book. What do earnest contending looks like? But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ— They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Here's the great climax of the book, an encouragement to those who earnestly contend. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And with all God's people, we say, Amen. Please be seated. About once a year, I read an ancient Chinese military treatise called The Art of War. Um, I do it by way of habit. I normally do it during one of my holidays. I normally do it with my feet up on a, on a chair in the bush somewhere. Uh, the book is attributed to a military strategist named Sun Tzu, uh, or Master Sun. And it was written a long time ago, the 5th century before Christ. Uh, that's like 2,500 years. Now, it's not a long book. It's just 13 chapters. And each of the chapters covers a set of skills or arts that relate to warfare, such as laying of plans, 
such as waging war, such as strategy, such as tactics, such as spies, kids, especially boys who like these kinds of things. It's an interesting read. For the last 2,500 years, it remains the most influential strategy text in East Asian warfare. And it has influenced both Eastern and Western military thinking, business tactics, legal strategy, and even lifestyle and beyond. Sun Tzu introduced me to a phrase called Know your enemy. And if I had to pick a title for what Jude is speaking about in his book this morning, from verse 11 through to verse 16, it would be that. Know your enemy. I want to quote an extract from The Art of War. Sun Chu says, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but you do not know your enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. But if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Friends, this morning we are going to talk about enemies. We are going to talk about enemies in the camp. As part of this call in the book of Jude to contend for the faith, to fight For the faith, Jude wants you as church members today, tomorrow, for the rest of this week to run some counterintelligence. You need to know the enemy. You need to be able to identify their characteristics and their conduct. And this morning, we are going to look at 12 characteristics and conducts of false teachers. I mean, just to give you a breakdown of how we're going to do that, we're going to look at three examples in verse 11. And then we're going to look at six pictures in verse 12 and 13. And we're going to end off with an additional three. There's a repeated word, ungodly, from verse 14 to verse 16. Know your enemies. So look with me in your Bibles. Just pay attention in the book of Jude to verse 11. And just the first phrase, it says, Woe! To them, woe to them. The word woe in Greek sounds like a guttural cry. False teachers are in imminent danger. False teachers are in terrible distress. False teachers will very soon plunge headlong into horror. The first three characteristics of these enemies of the faith, of these false teachers, of these people whose characteristics and conduct we need to keep an eye on relate to their certain doom. Here's the first one. You can see it in your Bible in verse 11. It says, they have gone the way of Cain. Let me repeat it so that you have the scripture firm in your mind, even as you keep your Bibles open. They have gone the way of Cain. My first point is this. Enemies of the faith are unbelievers. Cain's woeful story is found in Genesis chapter 4. Unlike his brother Abel, unbelieving Cain withheld the first fruits of his crop. I use the word unbelieving there. 
You might well ask, well, what's the difference between unbelief and disbelief? Disbelief refuses to accept God's existence. Unbelief recognizes that God exists, but unbelief refuses to take God at his word. Cain was a covetous, envious, murderous person who acted in unbelief toward God, and so God cursed Cain. Here's the application. False teachers today go the way of Cain in their unbelief. They deny the authority of Scripture. Unbelievers are enemies of the faith. That's the first point. The second point is again in verse 11. Look at your Bibles, just the next phrase. It says, uh, and they have plunged into Balaam's error for profit. They have plunged into Balaam's error for profit. Here's my point. Enemies of the faith are greedy. Balaam's woeful story is found in Numbers chapter 22 to 25 and then again in Numbers chapter 31. Before Kenneth Copeland, before Benny Hinn, before Leon Dupree, before Mboro, before Bashuri, Major One, Balaam was the poster child of a prophet for profit. He was offered money to curse the children of Israel, but Balaam couldn't do it. And so for a reward, he taught the enemy of God to seduce and corrupt the children of God. The Israelites fell into bowl worship and they fornicated with the Midianite women. Here's the application. False teachers today plunge into the era of Balaam when they fleece God's people. Whether they wear Versace or drive a Maserati, the judgment of God is coming for them. Greedy men are enemies of the faith. Which brings us to our third point. Again in verse 11. Now we are at the end of verse 11. Read in your own Bibles. It says, And have perished in Korah's rebellion. And have perished in Korah's rebellion. Here's the point. Enemies of the faith are grumblers. Korah's woeful story is found in Numbers chapter 16. He, He was a Levite. He was a priest. He was a grandson of Kohath. The Kohathites were responsible for transporting the tabernacle items. Korah's lust for power stirred dissatisfaction in him. He argued with Moses and Aaron that the entire community had equal rights to be priests before God. On the outside, Korah rebelled against spiritual leadership. But on the inside, his rebellion was actually against God himself. With Korah, his family, and all of his co-conspirators, he was swallowed up alive into the earth. Here's the application. False teachers today have perished in Korah's rebellion. Their judgment is certain. Their fate is sealed. Those who absurd leadership in Christ's church will soon face the head of the church, Jesus Christ, when he comes again. Grumblers are enemies of the faith. Which brings us to the end of verse 11. 
and the end of the first three Bible stories which show that enemies of the faith are doomed. Let me just summarize. Enemies of the faith are unbelievers, first of all. They don't take God at his word. Secondly, they are greedy. They sell fake faith for the love of money. And number three, they are grumblers. They are dissatisfied with the position that God has given them. What comes next from verse 12 to verse 13 are six pictures which show that these enemies of the faith are dangerous. I want you to follow in your own Bibles, if you would. And we're going to start at the beginning of verse 12. It says, these people are. Jude is going to continue to characterize the conduct and the character of the enemies of the faith. These are six pictures which show that these enemies of the faith are dangerous. Number one, dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. They are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you without reverence. Here's the point. Enemies of the faith are dangerous. These men look like spiritual pillars in the community. But in actual fact, they are jagged rocks. They are dangerous reefs. They lurk just beneath the water, and if you sail too close to them, they will shipwreck your faith. And they've infiltrated the assembly, Jude is saying. They're at the fellowship meal together with us. They are at the love feast. They're sitting with us in our bring and share. They will have a cup of tea or coffee with you before the service. Paul said of these men, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number to distort the truth and lure disciples into following them. Therefore, be on the alert. Here's the application. False teachers, friends, continue to slip into churches today. Their desire is to lure away sheep from the truth. Dangerous men are enemies of the faith. Fifth point, uh, and it's in the second part of verse 12. They are shepherds who look out only after themselves. They are shepherds who only look after themselves. Here's the point. Enemies of the faith are selfish. Want to know the difference between a good shepherd and a hireling? The shepherd cares for the sheep. The good shepherd sacrifices himself for the sheep. The hireling cares for himself. The hireling sacrifices the sheep that he might eat. Ezekiel wrote, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flocks? Here's the application. All over South Africa this morning, on our Sunday morning during services, men in silky suits with shiny shoes, pass money bags around, calling on sheep to sow seed and reap a reward. 
These men are false teachers. They are selfish shepherds. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They get fat eating the sheep that they are supposed to feed. Selfish men are enemies of the faith. Our sixth point this morning. We continue in verse 12. It's the next phrase. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds. What's the point? Friends, enemies of the faith are empty. These guys, they, they promise freedom, but they deliver slavery. They are like loud clouds which thunder, but like waterless clouds, they are empty. Why is it in South Africa, a country filled with professing Christians, do we see the manifestation of sin everywhere that we look? Because we've run after men of God who are nothing but charlatans, nothing but snake oil salesmen. Their promises of spiritual enrichment arouse great expectation, but because they are spiritually bankrupt, their hype quickly blows over. Empty men by way of application, are enemies of the faith. The seventh point, and it's right at the end of verse 12 in your own Bibles. Read together with me. These people are trees in late autumn. They are fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. Trees in late autumn. Fruitless, twice dead, and uprooted. Friends, the point is that enemies of the faith are dead. (laughs) Trees, they they bud in spring and they produce their fruit by summer. By autumn, the fruit is harvested or it drops to the ground. By late autumn, I mean, you've seen this, right? Like, I'm not a gardener, but I've seen this on my wife's fruit trees. But by late autumn, they have no leaves, they have no flowers, they have no fruit. They appear dead. False teachers are like that fruitless tree. But they're not just fruitless. They're also lifeless. They are twice dead. They look dead and they actually are dead. Utterly lifeless. No spiritual vitality to impart at all. They're not just fruitless though. They're not just lifeless though. They are rootless as well, our text says. These men are beyond rescue. Jesus said of them, every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. And again, he said, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, they throw them in the fire, and they are burned. Dead men, by way of application, are enemies of the faith. The Fifth point uh, in verse 13, at the beginning of verse 13, and the eighth point in terms of the characteristics of these men. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds. The point is this. Enemies of the faith are dirty. They are Waterless clouds and fruit trees which produce nothing good, nothing giving. But what these men do produce is filth. I come from Klabecha. Now, if you're from 
klabecha, and you know how to say klabecha, come and correct me after the service, because I'm sure I've got the click wrong, okay? Klabecha, uh, formerly known as Port Elizabeth. Now, if you know anything about PE, if you know anything about klabecha, you know that klabecha has sea, and klabecha has wind upon wind upon wind for miles. And so I'm very familiar with that grimy foam that the wind drives to the coast. Just like the crashing waves of the ocean, these men make a lot of noise, but they only produce that ugly foam that washes up along the shoreline because they're gospel light or maybe gospel absent. Their many words can only produce sin, can only produce guilt, can only produce shame. By way of application, dirty men are enemies of the faith. The last picture that we have in verse 13, you can read along with me in your Bible. Wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. They like wandering stars of whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Here's the point. Enemies of the faith are doomed. Since ancient days, Stars have served as guides for travelers. Whether you were on a ship or whether you were a shepherd, you would use the stars to guide your flock or your ship through this darkened world. But false teachers, false shepherds, false prophets, false pastors don't lead, they mislead. Unlike stars, which are fixed in the night sky, these men are more like comets that wander around and then after a time fizzle out into the darkness. They are unreliable guides. By way of application, false teachers today point people all too often to the broad road which leads to destruction, and there are many which go through it, rather than the narrow gate and the difficult road that leads to life which few find. Doomed men are enemies of the faith. That's the three stories and the six pictures. By way of summary, enemies of the faith are, number one, unbelievers. They don't take God at his word. They are greedy, number two. They sell faith, uh, fake faith for the love of money. Number three, they are grumblers. They are dissatisfied with the position that God's given them. Number four, they are dangerous, and they will shipwreck your faith. Number five, they are selfish. They will gobble you up and spit out the bones. Number six, they are empty. They can't impart life. Number seven, they are dead. And if you are their fruit, you will be dead too. Number eight, they are dirty. They produce and promote sin. Number nine, they are doomed. Judgment awaits them. What comes next from verse 14 to verse 16 before, uh, 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 verse 16 before we apply this text are four repetitions, four uses of the word ungodly, which come up again and again in the next three verses. Uh, read with me verse 14 by way of introduction. It says this, it was about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. Now, this is important to note, particularly if you're a Bible scholar. Verse 14 and 15 are quoting a book which is not in our Bible, the book of Enoch. Uh, the Enoch was an ancient Hebrew apocalyptic text. And while ascribed to the person of Enoch, it certainly wasn't written by him. 
Enoch contains unique material about the origins of demons and the Nephilim and why angels fell from heaven and why the flood was morally necessary, and it contains information about a millennial kingdom. Judas quotes from the book of Enoch, but that doesn't mean that we should give any additional authority to the book of Enoch. The book is not inspired, and some of it isn't even true. But this particular verse, which, the, which Jude quotes, is true. It was something, evidently, that Enoch actually did prophesy, and it was handed down by tradition and eventually recorded in the book. The prophecy starts off with this word, one word, look, look. Enoch prophesied out of a sense of, of urgency. The word look here is an imperative. It is a command. You're commanded to pay attention to what comes next. This is a command for you to be on alert. What does the command say? And this brings us to our 10th point. The Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. Let me read that again. You can read it in your own Bible. It's at the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly. What's the point? The enemies of the faith are awaiting trial prisoners and they will be found guilty. Believers, Jesus is coming again. Amen? And his second coming is going to be unlike his first coming. He isn't coming like the babe in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, all meek and mild. Jesus Christ is coming as king. And he's coming with thousands upon thousands of his angels. And when he comes, he isn't coming to offer salvation for all. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. Here's the application. False teachers walking around today with their $100 haircuts are really just awaiting trial prisoners. Their guilt is stacked against them. Their conviction is certain. Enemies of the faith are awaiting trial prisoners and they will be found guilty because they are as guilty as hell. Which brings us to our 11th point. And it's towards the end of verse 15. It says, concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way. This is the point. Enemies of the faith will be found guilty because their deeds are foul. The people that Judas is writing of here were antinomial. Now that's a new word. I mean, I'm guessing it's a new word for most of us. And in fact, right now you can turn to your neighbor next to you and make sure that they're still awake. Shake them on the shoulder if you drove here to church with them and say the word antinomial. Antinomial. <laughs> antinomial. What does the word antinomial mean? The word antinomial comes from two Greek words. The first one is anti, and that means against. And the second word is nomos, and that means law. And so the word antinomial really means against the law. It's the teaching that there are no moral laws God expects Christians to obey today. In contrast, the Apostle John says this, and by this we know that we know him 
if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. Here's the application. False teachers take biblical teaching to unbiblical conclusions. Christians are not required to observe the Old Testament law as a means of salvation. That is a biblical teaching. The unbiblical conclusion is that there is therefore no moral law that God expects Christians to obey. Friends, enemies of the faith love foul deeds. Lastly, point 12. And you can read this at the end of verse 15 and the whole of verse 16. And concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Bottom line is, the text says, And concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Who's the him here? It's Jesus Christ. What's the point? Enemies of the faith will be found guilty because at the end of the day, they are anti-Christ. These men are described as unthankful, carnal, boastful, and manipulative. And small wonder, because you can fake most of Christianity on the outside with your life. You can come to church and say hallelujah from time to time and wear your Sunday best. And you can make it look as if you are a believer. But one place that you can't control is your mouth. That's why it says in God's word that no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. If you're an unbeliever, eventually it will come out by what you say. Their throat, these false teachers' throat is an open grave, and they deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Here's the application. Ultimately, their words are anti-Christ. When they deny the person of Jesus Christ or his lordship over their lives, when they deny the divinity of Christ or the sovereign right of Jesus Christ to demand that we live holy lives to his praise and to his glory, enemies of the faith will be found guilty because their words are against Jesus Christ. That's 12 points. 12 points to help us to know our enemy. 12 points to help us to identify the counterfeit Christians in our midst. Enemies of the faith are, number one, unbelievers. They don't take God at his word. Number two, they are greedy. They sell fake faith for love of money. Number three, they are grumblers. They are dissatisfied with the position God has given them. Number four, they are dangerous. They will shipwreck your faith. Number five, they are selfish. They will gobble you up and spit out the bones. Number six, they are empty. They can't depart life. Number seven, they are dead. And if you are their fruit, you will be dead too. Number eight, they are dirty. They produce and promote sin. Number nine, they are doomed. Certain judgment awaits them. Number 10, they are guilty. They are awaiting trial prisoners. Number 11, their deeds are foul. They twist grace into sensuality. And lastly, number 12, they are anti-Christ. They deny Jesus Christ, his person, or his lordship. That's what the text says. 
Now, how does the text apply to us as we sit here studying it and reading it and looking at it this morning? Firstly, I want to speak to those of you who have not yet placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. Those of you who are not yet in Christ. And I want to remind you of the words of this text. They are urgent for you to pay attention to. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly friend that is you. You will shortly stand at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. He is a holy and a righteous judge. And on that day, the standard of his judgment will be perfection. And you are not perfect. We love at Central, John chapter 3, verse 16. It is a beautiful verse, and I'm guessing that you know it as well. It's a whosoever would verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friend, this morning I want to remind you of some other whosoever would verses. John chapter 3, same chapter, end of the chapter, verse 36 says this, whosoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whosoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath The wrath, the wrath of God remains on him. John isn't the only person who speaks in this whosoever language. The apostle Paul talks in Romans chapter 2 verse 5 and 6 of this. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath, wrath, wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But he goes on to say the verse that the kids learned this morning in the kids' talk. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If you are an unbeliever that is here today, maybe you came with your husband, maybe you came with your wife, maybe you were dragged here by your parents. I don't know how you got here, but you are here to hear that Jesus Christ is coming soon and he will judge the living and the dead. And on that day, if you are not in him, you will be counted as one who is ungodly. The wrath of God awaits you. What shall you do to be saved? The answer is this. Jesus died for your sin. He died as a substitute, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus rose from the grave, demonstrating that God accepted the payment of his own son. Friend, this moment, this day, do not delay. Do it at once. Turn from your sin and put your faith and your trust In Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the sacrifice for your sins which God has provisioned for you. Do it at once. The Lord, He is coming. What about the believer? How do you apply this? 
And maybe even before we get to the believer, what, what about the new convert? What about the person who has just placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior, and they've got all this zeal and all this excitement in their hearts? How do you apply this text? Friend, you are to mark and you are to avoid false teachers. This morning you have heard 12 characteristics and 12 uh, conducts of false teachers. You've heard three examples. You've seen six pictures. You have heard the repetition of the ungodly words. And so for you, you are to be alert for yourself and for your family. You need to mark and avoid false teachers. Now that might mean that you must go home today and go and take a look at the kinds of books that are on your shelf. Because it might well be that you know that you know that there are false teachers there. It might be that you need to be very careful about the television station which you play in the background this Sunday. Because you know that not everybody who is speaking on that station is speaking the words of God in the Spirit of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But there is false teaching like leaven mixed in between. Friend, you to apply this text in your life. What about believers? Well, believers, unlike new converts who must mark and avoid false teachers, for believers, this book was written to you. It wasn't addressed to a pastor, to Charles, to myself, to Jabu, to Isaac, to the elders of the church. It wasn't addressed to your Bible study leader. It was addressed to believers. It's addressed to the church. And so the main application of this text is that you must contend for the faith. You are in a spiritual war, believer. There are friends and there are foes in this conflict. You are to contend for the faith. And the New Testament is replete. It is filled with this battle language. Paul says, finally be strengthened in the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Paul, again, he, he speaks to Timothy and he charges him and he says, fight the good fight of the faith. And to the church in Philippi, he says, stand firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in any way by your opponents. Believer, the main application of this text of scripture is you need to suit up. You need to sharpen your blade. As you hear the rallying cry, you need to join the battle for the faith. You are to contend for the faith yourself. There's a last word that I believe I can give you from the text, and that's to older saints, saints who have been fighting this battle for a very long time, saints who may be battle-wearied. To you this morning, I want to remind you to take courage in this, the last battle. While the battle rages, keep in mind that the war has already been won. Jesus Christ has defeated the foe. He's defeated Satan, he has defeated sin, and he has defeated death. And your captain will soon return to carry you home. Take courage in these last days as you too contend for the faith. Amen? Let's close in a word of prayer. 
Well, Father God, I want to thank you for your word. It is faithful and it is true. And upon it, we can build our lives and our doctrine. Lord God, as we have looked at your word today, we have seen characteristics of those who are your enemies. And Lord, we have heard the rallying cry that we too must join the battle line, that we must contend for the faith. And so this morning in closing, Lord God, I ask you for a mercy and for a grace toward us. Would you strengthen us for this war? Would you encourage us in the midst of the difficulty? Oh Lord, might we hear your voice even on the battle as we need to take encouragement, as we need to be bolstered. Might we be faithful saints here at Central Baptist Church Arcadia that you might receive much praise and glory from your people. And this I ask in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and our Savior. Amen.